Welcome to season two of Best in SaaS, where we talk through the patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 20 million and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Despite the world melting around us, we survived season one with only a few scratches and a couple of bathroom incidents from our resident Best in SaaS puppy mascot, Stuart. Wash your hands and don your favorite face mask because here comes season two. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am thrilled, per usual, for you to listen in on this conversation. But before we get into it, if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the discussions, do me a favor and let us know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show and it helps Apple realize they should feature us on New and Noteworthy. So that would be awesome. With that, enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to the episode. All right. Today, I'm really excited to have Romy Mahajan on the call. Uh, Romy is the Chief Marketing and Revenue Officer at Quantarium. And before that, did a very long, almost a decade sprint at Microsoft. So Romy, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much. It's a real honor to be here. Well, so I'd love to just... You know, I'm always curious when people make a big shift from big company stuff and, and you know, rising through the ranks in a, in a large company like Microsoft to the startup world. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a big shift. What's that been like for you? Yeah, thanks, thanks for the question. I mean, you know, I did two stints at Microsoft, um, the last one ending in uh, October of 2011. And so it's been a while. And I think the, the shift really is, one about, is more about mindset. It's about your ability to control outcomes and control your day. Um, you know, as opposed to being part of a larger machine that operates on its own logic. So, you know, my story there is I accidentally in some ways got into Microsoft, though I loved it. Um, and then I sort of all my uh, freedom loving instincts and desire to fly like a bird took over. And I just sort of went on into my own um, it, it kind of into my own world of advising small companies and then finding a few that I really liked and wanted to be uh, take an operating role. So. There's really, for me, it's not even a, it's not a moral judgment thing. It's just a, a question of how I like to spend my day more than anything. Else. And so within that, like what, what has transferred over really well? What's become from your experience there over those two stints? What has become really an asset to you and something you've been able to leverage? And then maybe what's something on the flip side of that that you've had to relearn or retrain yourself on so that you can be effective within the small company? I think, by the way, that's a, a fantastic question. I mean, at Microsoft, I guess I learned a, a few things very profoundly from a couple of the people there and, and just as part of the milieu in general. Right? What, you know, you think about speed and scale when you're, when you're, when you're part of an entity like Microsoft. I mean, you're dealing with things that were, were so much larger than you could have ever imagined. In the, you're talking the billions of dollars in audiences of the hundred million. Um, you, you, you have resources and assets at your disposal that are, that are phenomenal, but you have to use them well. And so really speed and scale, um, and the notion of compromise, uh, really come into so how do you compromise with other parts of the company to get to a better outcome? Um, and I, you know, I think I learned a lot there, although I had some hiccups, um, you know, in my early years when sort of I thought I knew how to do things and I realized that I really needed other people's help, uh, to really be able to scale up and, 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 and add velocity 
uh, to my career and to the into the value add we were, we, we were offering in the marketplace. I think so. So I learned those there and I, how to think in a grandiose fashion. I think the things you have to unlearn and relearn are when you go on your own, you no longer call someone or email someone, you know, from the perspective of Microsoft, right? Uh, you don't have people jumping up and down to answer your call and, and try and laughing at your jokes and, you know, pretending, right? Because you are absolutely small. You're not big anymore. And, and so you have to unlearn that kind of privilege. And you have to unlearn um, the fact that you, that one you had resources at your disposal um, that could make you yourself almost just a traffic cop as opposed to a doer. So you've got to sort of relearn your discipline as well. Again, these aren't negative or positive statements. They're just statements of fact that have to do with the size, scale, grandiosity, and and, and amount of resources at your disposal. So. What, what, where are you in the sprint, right? We, the, you know, the show we focus on the, either the one to 10 millionaire, our sprint, the 10 to 20 plus sprint. What would make the most sense for us to focus on based on where you are, um, at your current company? Yeah. So I appreciate the question. Uh, Quantarian, you know, you know, Quantarian, we're, we're an AI company, uh, that's focused on uh, residential real estate. We're a B2B company now that we're making some plays into B2C. For much of the company's history, we were um, a, a part of another company, a, a large mortgage company. And as such, we were not um, out in the commercial world, sort of really trying to sell our, our, our products and services. With that said, um, 2019, last year, was our full year as a kind of commercial entity, entity, and we did uh, just over $7 million. So, you know, we're in that early part of the sprint. Um, as you, as you point out, we believe that there's incredible things in the future, but we're also very knowledgeable that with, um, the changes in the business world over the last five, six months with COVID, et cetera, um, that coupled with, on the other hand, some tailwinds in the market, that number from seven could, you know, uh, could go much, much higher really in the next uh, 18 to 24 months. So we are, uh, we're extremely optimistic as a company. And we've been given incredible feedback in the marketplace from um, all manner and all parts of uh, kind of the mortgage and real estate ecosystem. So we're feeling very, very good about our future. Although, like anybody who who carries the title I do, um, you know, more would be better sooner. Uh, but one has to be patient in these sprints. So in some ways, they're sprints. In some ways, they're marathons uh, to kind of push the, the analogy. So when when you're thinking through, you know, the last year, you split. You just you just said you split off from another the parent company last year, right? That's right. So why did that happen, and what was that process like? That's really interesting. Yeah, so I, I think it happened for all the right reasons on both sides, and the process was um, it's always somewhat painful, but in our case, also very amicable. Um, the, uh, the parent company, uh, Nation Star Bank, formerly. Nation Star Mac now uh, referred to as Mr. Cooper. Um, it's um, and you know it's, it's a publicly traded company. Um, they are a, a, an incredible company based out in Dallas, but they are not a, an incubator of AI. Right? They are uh, they're a mortgage company. Made a lot of acquisitions. Very very talented people. But you know an AI company. We're based in Seattle, etc. It's just a different culture and a different business. And as such. Um, we felt uh, mutually that it was time to move on for us to seek 
kind of an independent existence and for them to continue to be well-wishers and customers. Got it. And and so what, what's been the driver? I mean, the first year as an independent entity, that those surely exciting times, like what, what is your thesis on growth been to date? And then a lot of stuff has inherently changed at a macro level since then. So what gets you excited about the next, call it six to 12 months on the growth side? What are you thinking about there? So our thesis in the first uh, kind of year was that direct selling would be our core level of growth. Um, we have some incredible people from the real estate data industry um, who had great connections. And so we did rely um, a lot in this in this first year, this kind of first 20 months, right, um, uh, on, on, on connections we had, conversations that had taken place over the last five years, what would generally be called kind of roller mixing. We have uh, moved that motion into much more of a structured, connected sales and marketing, channel-led uh, uh, process whereby um, you know we're getting inbound leads and, and and we're going through a process and so the lever of growth early on was um, kind of people in the concentric circles of network uh, and now it's um, any and everyone who can realize value from kind of our data streams our automated valuation models our analytics models our propensity models and and sort of portfolio optimization. Uh, AI and uh, solutions for uh, mortgage, real estate, you know, banks, insurance companies, etc. So the thesis um, naturally changes as as you grow and as the motion that you set up in the company changes. And we're sort of in that amazing tweener period where we're still um, direct selling, but we're also leveraging and expanding through channel um, as well as connected sales and marketing. So exciting time, certainly for me as the CMO. Um, and for uh, for the sales team from a revenue standpoint. So tactically speaking, I'm curious how you structured your shift, your transition from this, you know, it's not fully abandoning direct selling by any means, but as you made that transition into, you know, channel, how did, how did you choose to structure that transition? Yeah, and, and part of this was, you know, we can claim in hindsight that everything's by design, right? But at the end of the day, you also feel your way through a process. And um, we realized that um, that given what we had done last year in terms of adding on customers um, and creating what we call sockets, right? More sockets for potentially um, taking the customer on a longer journey from where they just start with us, that we, we need not only to sell to them, but also to really nurture, to talk, to think about customer success as, as any SaaS company would. And so we have an, a, an amazing person um, uh, who, who, who sort of looks after what could cynically be called upsell, but in reality is basically helping your customer along a journey um, for, to help them avail of different products and solutions you know, that they need as they, as they themselves mature. Um, and so, we, you know, we, we felt our way through that and realized that that kind of farming and not hunting uh, was also a good thing. But frankly, with the COVID world uh, kind of hitting us in, you know, depending on where you're on the world, from November to, to March and then ongoing, um, there's been a lot of interest in kind of automation, AI-based solutions and mortgage, kind of a no-touch economy, contactless, um, and, and better collaboration between sort of the government of what we call the GSEs and the mortgage companies and, and consumers. And so that has called for kind of a channel model where there are companies out there that 
that have relationships with all of these and provide data. And, and uh, as Ambalba said, you know, if you want to meet um, an audience, you should go to the bar where they hang out. Don't try to build your own bar all the time, right? So sometimes you you sort of work with established channels uh, and, and sort of educate them on what you're doing, and that's kind of a proven method. So, you know, from a Microsoft background, again, direct selling and channel selling are both fundamental parts of the company's business model. What, what, so now forward thinking, I mean, what, what sort of things in, uh, we'll call it revenue gen, since I know you straddle both sides of that coin. Uh, what, what has you most excited about the future there? Are, are there any kind of new strategies or tactics that you haven't yet tried, but that you're seeing out in the market and you're excited by? You know, we, one thing that has worked for us that we haven't formalized is uh, what I would loosely call customer advocacy, right? Which is that um, as our customers onboard us, they have massive ecosystems. And they are increasingly saying, look, hey, uh, Mr. X, Mrs. Y, you've got to think about Quantum. We use them. They're amazing. You're not going to get this type of either uh, uh, kind of breadth or coverage, but also this type of service level agreement from any other company in the space. Mm-hmm. And so customer advocacy sort of, um, them being our biggest advocates and biggest vectors of revenue um, is just an incredibly new area for us and uh, in terms of formalization and is one that has really become very fertile in terms of uh, in terms of our ability to do it. So I think that's kind of the next three to six months, a huge concentration on that. Um, and 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 then there's these this beautiful bluebird, uh, of inbound, right? Which is people are finding us and, 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 and hitting us up, right? And we feel very fortunate to be positioned in such a way that a company like ours that's really spent very little money on marketing, just given our size, um, has been able to be, um, you know, so successful in terms of the inbound real estate. So now this is like totally a question I wouldn't normally ask, but I'm curious. So my last company um, was founded in Portland, Oregon, and I know you're in Bellevue. I'm curious how you feel the Pacific Northwest startup community has changed, if it's changed at all. You know, back back in the day, there was always this kind of big, you know, not a debate, but it was just like, oh, you're not in Silicon Valley and, and, and kind of establishing Pacific Northwest startups as, you know, a viable path for companies to, to grow and see the same level of scale as the Valley. And then now we have this interesting thing happening where there's in some sense a, a mass exodus occurring out of Silicon Valley to places like Seattle and Austin and Denver and these other kind of what used to be well, just not the valley, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious if if you're seeing or feeling any of that out there, and, and what that is like now that remote is becoming so much more. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and I will say that um, you know I have a lot of strong opinions on this, so please excuse me if I sound too strident. But um, <laughs> you know, I've always thought that the valley, uh, Silicon Valley. You know, I went to school. Um, at, at Berkeley, right, which is part of that area, and my wife there, etc. Lived there for a while. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very fond of, of the San Francisco Bay Area, but I do think Silicon Valley created kind of a force field of thought on people and created this kind of um, view in the world that everything is tech and tech only, um, and that if you haven't done a startup, you're a loser, and 
and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think that's not super healthy for, for an overall economy. I think in Seattle, you look at Seattle, I mean, you've got Microsoft, Amazon, uh, you name it, right? I mean, bunches of new unicorns. Um, in some ways, it's strange, right? Seattle's home to um, three of the richest tech uh, people in the history of tech, or or actually four, right? Although one of them you know, recently passed. I mean, my point is Seattle is no longer, uh, can no longer be considered uh, even sort of secondary or kind of a background in any way. Um, that said, I think Seattle has its own issues, right? Which is there's some big companies that, that do um, offer a, a lot, and then there are startups, uh, and then mid-sized companies, and everyone struggles as to which one is right for you, right? And uh, and so Seattle is in some sense a microcosm of, of what was thought of as that kind of valley fever or, or on the other hand, that valley degeneracy from earlier. Um, you know, it, all of this, all of the stuff that's going on with the massive growth of tech comes with consequences as well, right? I mean, social unrest, economic inequality, racial injustice, etc. All these things are part of, you know, a one area growing um, and, and focus and one sector dominating so. So whereas I've, you know, made my bones in tech and whatever little success I've had in my career is due to tech, uh, I think we need to look at each one of these cities as as much more than just kind of uh, um, an incubator for for new tech companies. Right? We have to think of them as holistic ecosystems for everyone from teachers to people at restaurants uh, to drivers to uh, homemakers to to tech you know to tech executives. So Seattle, I think, is as good as any place to be if you're in the tech in the tech world. Um, but I think uh, it's also facing some of the consequences of that growth, and uh, I really hope that there's a there's a balance that's wrought um, and fought for, right? In 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 from the Valley to Seattle to Austin to, as you say, Denver, other cities that are sort of uh, growing um, with a, with a, with the preponderance of growth being in one or two sectors. So I really like the the direction we're headed right now. I, I'm curious, you know, how do you think tech? Uh, this is going to be a, a little too general, so I'll try to make it less general. But like, how, how how do you think tech can push to be more involved in those other aspects, or to help create more balance? And I don't know if accountability is the right word, but um, you know, just interconnectedness between technology as its own microcosm and all of these other facets of a healthy community that, you know, can be ignored if this monoculture is is left to just grow on its own without some sense of balance. So that, that question might not have made much sense. So no, I mean, it made perfect sense. I really, I sort of have three answers to that. And um, it's weird because we think about that at Quantarium a lot. Um, as a small company, number one, and number two, in a, in a very core area of the economy, which is housing. And I, I don't just mean core area of the economy, but also core area of the economy with regard to equality, right? And you see housing itself is not a very equal industry. And so applying technology to housing gives you a lot of insights into what are the things we can do better as, as a tech community. So first is, I think, people involved in the tech community whether you're you know, working at Microsoft or Amazon, you're an executive, you're not, you're at a startup, you're in a medium-sized company, you've got to realize that you're, uh, the world is is not the hermetic box you live in, right? Um, there's a big world out there. 
Not everyone's making the money you're making. Not everyone has the benefits you have. Not everyone has the freedom to kind of randomly work from home or go to the office and you, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So I think the, the note, the, uh, the language of and uh, the feeling of insularity and privilege has got to be, has got to be done with. And, and so I think that's critical. And if it's not going to happen just naturally, then I think tech companies need to sort of create internship programs where, you know, people can go and work in the community for a year or two years or three years, uh, maybe get a cut salary or whatever, but really do something that's, that's creating bridges in this community. So that's one thing. The second is I do think that, um, even though this sounds very strange for, for anyone who's involved in business, I think there's got to be less of a focus on the insane profits, right? That that big tech and, and the technology companies in general uh, enjoy. I think there's got to be a leveling of that and a more spending on the community infrastructure, common infrastructure, housing, um, public works, you know, parks, that sort of things. That you know, if I think about my area, I live in Bellevue near Redmond. You know, I'm very lucky that I can live in a place like this. I'm surrounded by green, etc. But you know, um, look at the traffic around here. So uh, traffic is increased because of all these companies being successful. These companies need to do something to mitigate that. Maybe uh, you know, have better uh, you know, pay for transportation uh, or subsidize public transportation, uh, build parks. Uh, you know, um, subsidize the local businesses that you know, for whom rent is hard, etc. So I think there's an organic connection that has to be made between these companies and the, and the communities that support them, um, which starts with getting out of the, the thought bubble and two, start, uh, and two connects with maybe reduce your profits for a while and think about that, right? And the third thing I think would be tech, uh, the, the big tech companies, etc., sort of jointly agreeing with community um, you know, activists, doctors, uh, you know, urbanists, um, sociologists, anthropologists around big projects that can be worked on together and really to throw their resources and capability into it. So for instance, let's say there was a project around reducing air pollution in Seattle, right? Okay, great. Let's all work on that together. Things that better the lives of everyone and not just, you know, the people who can afford it and, and with the seven figure salaries and, and so on. So, so I think those three things can really forge bonds um, and, and reduce the negative impact of what is for many a very positive, you know, impact of growth and so on and so forth and riches, but really not everyone cheering. So as we wind down, thank you for that, by the way. I, I, I love it when we can combine a conversation about, you know, high growth technology companies with community and and some of the bigger things at play uh, in the world right now. Um, I'd love to close by, you know, if, if you have, do you have any favorite community projects, you know, in, in Seattle or even more broadly that you're really passionate about that you'd be willing to share with our audience yeah. and those listening who might also want to get involved? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how affordable uh, these are to others. I mean, obviously these answers are very specific to a person, but you know, very, very, I, I do think that we, you know, we're, we're faced with an existential crisis around the planet and technology um, can play a big part in number one, stopping the further pain and then actually adding to the solution. So we've got to be very smart about understanding the technology with all our data centers and Bitcoin and this, that, that we're adding to the problem and not just, 
um, uh, you know, not just uh, using technology to solve them. So that I do think. Second, we absolutely um, need to use technology to uh, to, to increase uh, com- uh, community engagement. You know, people need to get out there and vote this year. They need to be much, much more involved in the communities they live in, and that will have, uh, I think, um, a cascading and wonderful effects in both, you know, uh, income inequality being leveled off, uh, racial justice, gender justice, you know, all that stuff that really requires engagement and requires an ability for um, meaningful change to come about as a result of democratic processes, right? So I think that's kind of the second thing. And the third thing I would say is, and this one seems a little counterintuitive, but, you know, we have to support not just the STEM professions, right? But we have to support, even as a tech industry, art and anthropology and political science and law and environmental, you know, studies and so on. It's not all about creating the next wave of amazing engineers, but really much more of a balanced um, and full society and that, that tech can play a big role in it. So, you know, there's a lot of great rhetoric out there that we're now seeing, and I really, really do hope that it's backed up with really concrete plans. But but I think we all know that sometimes rhetoric overtakes. When I'm a marketer, sometimes I myself use my rhetoric to, you know, to say things that, that can appear disingenuous, right? But I think we need to get to the point where we're much more ingenuous, much less disingenuous, and really come together um, as, um, as as an industry in which even if we compete with each other, ultimately the goals are the same. Absolutely. So, Romy, as we wind down, uh, you know, you, you've had an amazing career thus far. I'm curious if, if there are any mentors or even friends and colleagues who have inspired you along the way and helped you get to where you are today. You know, there, there are, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of do a bit of a party call here and, and keep them nameless. They know who they are. Career-wise, there are five or six people that I can point to that gave me, gave me options, gave me choices. Uh, bet on me when I really wasn't ready to do what I was taking on. Um, and, and I will say though that most of my mentors and uh, people from whom I seek advice are, are not in the industry. They are people who um, keep me um, reading stuff outside of the industry, keep me active in those things. Um, and increasingly also uh, my 16 year old daughter, uh, Kamaya, who is social activist and keeps me honest every day. In fact, sometimes very uncomfortable. So with that, I, you know, I won't name names, but they, you, they know who they are. Well, Romy, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I, I really enjoyed it. And I think there's a lot in here for our, our listeners as well. So nothing disingenuous about saying the pleasure was for me. <laughs>